This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of diabetic Charcot neuropathy from the foot and ankle section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Diabetic Charcot neuropathy is a chronic and progressive disease that occurs as a result of loss of protective sensation, which leads to the destruction of foot and ankle joints and surrounding bony structures. Diagnosis can be made clinically with a warm and erythematous foot with erythema that decreases with foot elevation. Radiographs often reveal obliteration of the joint space and fragmentation of both articular surfaces of a joint, leading to subluxation or dislocation. Treatment is a trial of total contact casting for acute Charcot deformities without skin breakdown. Operative management is indicated for recurrent infections, deformities, and severe skin breakdown. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, the incidence of diabetic Charcot neuropathy is 0.1 to 1.4% of patients with diabetes, and know that 7.5% of patients with diabetes and neuropathy have diabetic Charcot neuropathy. As far as demographics, in patients with type 1 diabetes, diabetic Charcot neuropathy typically presents in the fifth decade, that is typically 20 to 25 years following diagnosis. In patients with type 2 diabetes, Diabetic Charcot neuropathy typically presents in the sixth decade, that is typically 5 to 10 years following diagnosis. As far as the anatomic location for diabetic Charcot neuropathy, the foot and ankle is common, and know that 9 to 35% of patients have bilateral disease. Other locations include the shoulder and elbow, as well as the knee. Other locations include the shoulder and elbow, and the knee, which often leads to ligamentous instability and bone loss. Risk factors for diabetic Charcot neuropathy include diabetic neuropathy, alcoholism, leprosy, myelomeningocele, tabes dorsalis slash syphilis, and syringomyelia. Moving on to the etiology of diabetic Charcot neuropathy in terms of mechanism and pathophysiology, the theories include a neurotraumatic etiology and neurovascular etiology. As far as the mechanism and pathophysiology of diabetic Charcot neuropathy, there are two main theories, the neurotraumatic theory and the neurovascular theory. The neurotraumatic theory is that insensate joints are subjected to repetitive microtrauma and the body is unable to adopt protective mechanisms to compensate for microtrauma due to abnormal sensation. And the neurovascular theory is that autonomic dysfunction increases blood flow through arteriovenous shunting, which leads to bone resorption and weakening. In terms of the molecular biology of diabetic Charcot neuropathy, inflammatory cytokines may cause destruction. Specifically, IL-1 and TNF-alpha lead to increased production of transcription factor kappa-B and the rank rank ligand OPG triad pathway. Associated conditions with diabetic Charcot neuropathy are foot ulcerations, which is a whole other topic that we'll discuss in more detail in another episode. Moving on to the classification of diabetic Charcot neuropathy, the ones to know include the Bronski classification and the Eichenholz classification. The Bronski classification is broken down into five types. Type 1 involves the tarsometatarsal and naviculocuneiform joints, and collapse leads to a fixed rocker-bottom foot with valgus angulation, and 60% of diabetic Charcot neuropathy patients fall into this type. Type 2 involves the subtalar, talonavicular, or calcaneocuboid joints, and it is characterized as unstable and requires long periods of immobilization, sometimes up to two years, and approximately 10% of diabetic Charcot neuropathy patients fall into this type. Type 3 is divided into two subtypes, type 3A and type 3B. Type 3A involves the tibio-talar joint, and late varus or valgus deformity produces ulceration and osteomyelitis of the malleoli in 20% of patients. 
Type 3B follows fracture of the calcaneal tuberosity and late deformity results in distal foot changes or proximal migration of the tuberosity, and this is seen in less than 10% of diabetic Charcot neuropathy patients. Type 4 involves a combination of areas and accounts for less than 10% of patients with diabetic Charcot neuropathy. And finally, type 5 occurs solely within the forefoot, and this also accounts for less than 10% of patients with diabetic Charcot neuropathy. Moving on to the Eichenholz classification, this is divided into four stages. Stage 0 is characterized by joint edema, radiographs are negative, and a bone scan may be positive in all stages. Stage 1 is characterized by fragmentation, joint edema, and radiographs show osseous fragmentation with joint dislocation. Stage 2 is characterized by coalescence. This will manifest with decreased local edema, and radiographs will show coalescence of fragments and absorption of fine bone debris. And finally, stage 3 is the reconstruction phase, which has no local edema, and radiographs show consolidation and remodeling of the fracture fragments. As far as the presentation of diabetic Charcot neuropathy, symptoms may include a swollen foot and ankle, loss of function, pain in 50% of patients, and painless in 50% of patients. Physical exam for acute Charcot neuropathy should include inspection, where you would likely see swelling, warmth, and in fact the limb is an average of 3.3 degrees Celsius warmer than the contralateral side. You may also see erythema, which is often confused with infection. Know that erythema will decrease with elevation in Charcot arthropathy, but is unchanged in infection. Chronic Charcot neuropathy on inspection will reveal a structurally deformed foot, bony prominences, a rocker bottom deformity, and collapse of the medial arch. As far as motion in diabetic Charcot neuropathy, patients may be ligamentously unstable, and neurovascular status should be evaluated using Semmes-Weinstein monofilament testing. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a standard AP and lateral of the foot as well as a complete ankle series, and as far as findings, early changes will show degenerative changes that may mimic osteoarthritis, late changes may show obliteration of the joint space, as well as fragmentation of both articular surfaces of a joint leading to subluxation or dislocation. Other late changes may show scattered, quote, chunks of bone in fibrous tissue, surrounding soft tissue edema, joint distension by fluid, and or heterotopic ossification. Bone scans may be useful to help determine the presence of superimposed osteomyelitis. As far as the type of study, a technetium bone scan may be positive for a neuropathic joint and osteomyelitis, while an indium white blood cell scan will be negative or cold for neuropathic joints and positive or hot for osteomyelitis. MRI is best for differentiating abscess from soft tissue swelling. This is the most sensitive test in diagnosing soft tissue and or osteomyelitis. However, the limitation is that it is often difficult to differentiate infection from Charcot arthropathy on MRI. Laboratory studies to get include inflammatory markers like an ESR and white blood cell count, which will be both elevated in both infection and Charcot arthropathy. As far as wound healing levels, an absolute lymphocyte count of greater than 1,500 per cubic millimeter and a serum albumin of greater than 3 grams per deciliter are markers of adequate wound healing capability. Biopsy may be used to guide antibiotic therapy in cases of diabetic Charcot neuropathy-associated osteomyelitis or soft tissue abscess. Histology in these patients may show synovial hypertrophy and or detritic synovitis, which is basically cartilage and bone distributed in the synovium. Treatment for diabetic Charcot neuropathy can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes total contact casting, shoe wear modifications, and medications, and this is typically the first line of treatment. With contact casting, casts are changed every two to four weeks for two to four months. 
As far as orthotics, a Charcot Restraint Orthotic Walker, or a Crow Boot, can be used after contact casting. As far as shoe modifications, in Eichenhold Stage 3, double rocker shoe modifications will best reduce the risk for ulceration at the plantar apex of the deformity. Some medications that can be used in diabetic Charcot neuropathy include bisphosphonates, neuropathic pain medications, antidepressants, and topical anesthetics. As far as outcomes of non-operative management, there is a 75% success rate. Operative management has a few options, including resection of bony prominences, aka an exostectomy, as well as tendo-Achilles lengthening. Other options include deformity correction, arthrodesis plus or minus osteotomies, and amputation is also an option. And we'll go into the indications for each of these options now. Resection of bony prominences or an exostectomy and a tendo-Achilles lengthening is indicated for a, quote, braceable foot with equinus deformity and focal bony prominences causing skin breakdown. The goal with this procedure is to achieve a plantigrade foot that allows ambulation without skin compromise. Deformity correction, arthrodesis plus or minus osteotomies, is indicated for a severe deformity that is not braceable, and as far as fixation techniques for an arthrodesis, this can be either internal fixation or external fixation. Internal fixation can involve screws, pins, plates, and or a tibiocalcaneal nail. External fixation is used when bone quality is poor or the soft tissues are compromised. Postoperative care in these patients involves minimal weight-bearing for three months. The cons of an arthrodesis is that they are actually associated with a high complication rate, up to 70% in fact, and these specifically include infection, hardware malposition, recurrent ulceration, and fracture. Finally, the last resorts are amputations, which are indicated after a failed previous surgery, like an unstable arthrodesis, and or recurrent infection. The goal of an amputation in these patients is for a partial or limited amputation if vascularity allows. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 47-year-old diabetic female with long-standing peripheral neuropathy presents with worsening foot pain over the past three days with associated redness and swelling. A lateral foot radiograph reveals significant Charcot arthropathy. Which imaging modality is the most sensitive to diagnose soft tissue infection? And the choices are 1. Radiographs alone. 2. Bone scan. 3. Ultrasound. 4. MRI with and without contrast. And 5. CT scan with and without contrast. The correct answer to this question is 4. MRI with and without contrast. So in patients with Charcot arthropathy, the most sensitive test to diagnose soft tissue and bone infection is MRI. Regarding advanced imaging modalities, MRI remains the most sensitive in diagnosing soft tissue and bone infections in the diabetic foot. In those studies that are equivocal, adding a bone scan may help. Anakwenzi et al. offer the most recent review and guidelines in a JAOS management article. While CT and radiographs may offer signs of infection, for example, error and eroding bony architecture, MRI remains the gold standard in assessing and diagnosing osteomyelitis as well as infection of the surrounding soft tissue structures. In equivocal studies, bone scan may also offer assistance, but when used independently, remains inferior to MRI for sensitivity and specificity. Lipsky et al. offer the most recent guidelines from the infectious disease standpoint and mirror the guidelines set forth by the AOS. They also cite level 1 evidence that reports that MRI is more specific for diagnosis of infection in the diabetic foot when compared to bone scan. 
To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, radiographs alone may offer advanced changes of infection, for example, erosion and bone loss, but these findings are not specific for infection. Answer three, ultrasound is incorrect, as ultrasound may help find fluid collections, but is not as specific as MRI. Finally, answer two, bone scan, and answer five, CT scan with and without contrast is incorrect, as other advanced imaging studies may be helpful and diagnostic, however, MRI is more sensitive and specific. Moving on to the next question. A 70-year-old woman with type 2 diabetes presents with an erythematous, swollen, and warm left foot. Her radiograph depicts disruption of the bony architecture of the midfoot. What is her diagnosis and a common clinical examination finding associated with the diagnosis? And the choices are 1. Cellulitis and erythema decreases after elevation. 2. Cellulitis and there's an abnormal Semmes-Weinstein monofilament test. 3. Complex regional pain syndrome and erythema decreases after elevation. 4. Charcoal arthropathy and erythema decreases after elevation. And 5. Charcoal arthropathy and erythema increases after elevation. The correct answer to this question is 4. Charcoal arthropathy and erythema decreases after elevation. So this patient's clinical history, exam, and radiographic findings are consistent with charcoal arthropathy of the foot. A classic finding often observed in patients with charcoal arthropathy of the foot and ankle is dissipation of the dependent erythema after minutes of elevation. To quickly review, charcoal arthropathy is a progressive, non-infectious, destructive disease of the bones and joints in patients with sensory neuropathy. Diabetic neuropathy is the most common cause of charcoal neuroarthropathy, with the foot and ankle being the most commonly affected locations. Common clinical findings of charcoal arthropathy almost always include inflammation with significant unilateral swelling, warmth, and erythema, often mimicking infection. The disappearance of erythema with elevation is the key finding differentiating charcoal arthropathy from cellulitis. Vandervent et al. published a review article on charcoal neuroarthropathy of the foot and ankle. They reported that disease progression prevention is the mainstay of treatment, with few promising pharmacologic therapies directed towards decreasing bone resorption. They recommend surgical intervention be reserved for refractory cases. Thompson et al. reviewed Charcot neuropathic osteoarthropathy in the diabetic foot. They reported that a delay in diagnosis and treatment results in progression and ulcer formation in nearly half of patients, ultimately increasing amputation risk and decreasing overall survival. They concluded that healthcare providers should institute a multidisciplinary approach in managing these patients, ensuring compliance with weight-bearing restrictions, therapeutic footwear, soft tissue protection, and prolonged immobilization to decrease complications and improve outcomes. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, cellulitis and erythema decreases after elevation, and answer 2, cellulitis and an abnormal Semmes-Weinstein monofilament test are both incorrect as the radiographic findings make isolated cellulitis unlikely. Furthermore, the disappearance of erythema with elevation is the key finding differentiating Charcot arthropathy from infection or cellulitis. Answer 3, complex regional pain syndrome and erythema decreases after elevation is incorrect as complex regional pain syndrome is caused by an aberrant inflammatory response and typically does not exhibit the radiographic findings described in the question stem. Finally, answer 5, Charcot arthropathy and erythema increases after elevation is incorrect as in Charcot arthropathy, the erythema decreases after elevation. And moving on to the final question. A 65-year-old diabetic female presents with a two-month history of mild ankle pain. She denies any specific injury, and she does not have any foot ulcerations or wounds. Her foot and ankle are edematous with erythema that resolves upon elevation. 
her ESR, CRP, and white blood cell levels are within normal limits, and her radiographs show severe Charcot changes to the hind foot. What is the most appropriate initial treatment at this time? And the choices are 1. Modification of shoe wear. 2. Use of a total contact cast. 3. Ankle arthrodesis. 4. Spanning external fixation of the ankle and the hind foot. And 5. Below knee amputation. The correct answer to this question is 2. Use of a total contact cast. So Charcot arthropathy is a devastating bone and joint disease. While it most commonly occurs in those with diabetes and neuropathy, it has been known to occur with other non-diabetic neuropathies as well. Initial treatment should include bracing and frequent skin checks to monitor for development of ulcerations or other skin lesions. Neuropathic osteoarthropathy, otherwise known as Charcot neuroarthropathy, is a chronic degenerative arthropathy and is associated with decreased sensory innervation. Typical findings include joint destruction, disorganization, and effusion with osseous debris. Progression of Charcot neuroarthropathy often follows a predictable clinical and radiographic pattern and is described by the Eichenholz classification. Hatsis et al. reviewed a case series of neuroarthropathy of the shoulder and found that syringomyelia is the most common etiology of this disorder in the shoulder. That's all for this review about diabetic Charcot neuropathy. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.